Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Yes, front and centre for me this week, the big data point of the week, I think. PMIs out of Europe this coming Friday will be a big focus of this market. Looking ahead to it all, I'm really pleased to say David Kelly joins us now. JP Morgan Asset Management Chief, Global Strategist. David, fantastic to have you with us. Talk to me about the message that you have for clients this Tuesday morning. Well, yeah, I I think the message is you've you've got to look at the sort of different paths that markets and the economy have taken. I think we've gotten a little complacent. You know, this is 11 years into an expansion. Not much has seemed to go on. So the markets keep on drifting higher in terms of equity markets. Rates keep on drifting lower. But the main story is really the one that you and Tom have been talking about, which is there are plenty of signs of the global economy slowing down. Very weak numbers out of Japan, weak numbers out of Europe and China, obviously in, in some trouble here. And in the U.S., uh, we're looking at about 1% growth, maybe even less for the first quarter. And that brings us down to about 1.7% year over year. So there is this slowdown. We're not seeing recession yet. But given the slowdown and the troubles in the, in the global economy, it does seem like the market is a little too exuberant here. Well, David, let's take that analysis and take it a step further. What's the capital allocation decision? What are the decisions for capital allocation that supplement your worldview? Well, I, I, you really have, if you start with the, the notion that valuations have just become a little unhinged from each other, what's expensive here? Bonds are expensive. U.S. equities are a bit expensive. What's cheap? Um, global equities are cheap. Um, and so I'd be a little overweight global equity, international equities relative to the U.S., notwithstanding their short-term problems. And then also within the U.S. market, um, if you look at things like utilities and REITs above 20 times earnings, you look at financials down at about 13 times earnings. So there are pockets of value within the U.S. market. But uh, generally speaking, I'd look carefully at valuations. And this is the kind of market in which I'd want to make sure I load up on the, on the cheap stuff and make sure I'm not overweight the expensive stuff. Had a profit warning from Apple 12 months ago, and then the stock doubled, David. The problem is, going into that profit warning, the stock was down by about a third of 1% from the 2018 high. This is a stock that's near all-time highs as the company issues a revenue warning. Just in terms of how we're set up now versus 12 months ago, it just feels like night and day, David. Yep. Well, I, and, I, and I think the key is, if you're a long-term investor, you're in, and what I mean is, you're not going to be spending the money in the next four, five, six years. You've got to stop trying to make a timing decision. The real question is never when, it is what. And you, and you just are not going to be able to time the way markets behave in terms of bad news, good news. I mean, mark, uh, markets can uh, work in very perverse ways in the short run. But in the long run, the economy does really matter. In the long run, it is about earnings and interest rates. And so you've just got to you know, try to take that long-term view. Recognize you know, what, what happens is you have this, this spread in valuation. Some things get very cheap. Some things get very expensive. And then you have some, some sort of shock, and everybody has to pay attention again. And when they pay attention, the stuff that's most expensive tends to get hit the hardest. Um, so, you know, I would uh, I'd not try to time this very much, but just recognize there's some areas of the market, some areas of the global markets which are cheaper than others. Let's get a little more specific. Uh, in the Bank of America Merrill Lynch February Fund Manager survey that came out today, over half of those uh, who responded said that the most crowded trade was the long U.S. tech growth stocks, but they also said yep. that growth stocks are expected to outperform value stocks over the next 12 months. Attention here. Uh, they're overcrowded, yet will continue to outperform. Do you view this as an area that is particularly expensive and worth perhaps lightening up on? Well, yeah, I, I think that that's a fair fair point. And, and the key is that if you have not rebalanced, you're probably overweight anyway. 
And that's really the, the most important thing to, to look at because of the outperformance of large cap growth stocks. But as of you know the end of last week, the large cap growth sector overall, broad sector, uh, was about 30% above its average P.E. ratio of the last 20 years. Small cap value was about 5% below. Um, so, you know, I think this is a time, if you can, to move a little bit of money out of large cap growth into small cap value to try to, you know, be a little bit more normal in what is yeah. an increasingly abnormal market. David, the ten-year, excuse me, the thirty-year bond with a one ninety-eight handle, gold's going to edge up to sixteen hundred here in two cups of coffee, as well. Is the market getting out front of the Fed, or does the Fed have control of a situation where they can wait for the March meeting and the meetings after that to decide to cut rates? I don't really think this is about the Fed or should be about the Fed because the Fed there's really no point in the Fed cutting rates. If the Fed cuts rates in March. Um, it is not going to stimulate any economic growth, and it'll simply leave them with less ammunition if we actually face a recession. I don't see a recession right now. But I think the bigger point is money is funneling t- towards richer and richer Americans, and you know the gap between rich and poor is increasing. But what that's doing is it's leaving a huge fund of money to be invested in markets. So you know the, the average person might spend some money. Richer people tend to invest money, and that's pushing down yields, pushing up stock prices. And I think what's really go- you know, what's fascinating to me, it's not about inflation or even the economy. It is that there's so much money pushing into the bond market that, you know, for example, tip seals are now running at about 10 basis points negative on yeah. a 10-year tip. And that's, that's crazy. You're locking in okay. a negative real return for 10 years. This is really important. Back up, David, and explain. That's a little, I think, jargon-laced for our listeners, including me. The tips yield. What's the tips yield and what's it mean that it's negative by a little teensweens amount? Well, what it, what it is, these are treasury inflation-protected securities. So what the government does is they give you a, a, a yield, and then they say, but we'll give you whatever inflation is. So basically it takes inflation out of the picture. This is, this is what you get after inflation. But the point is that number has now turned negative. So, so essentially they say whatever inflation turns out to be, you're, we will re- reward you for that. But apart from that, we will give you, ne- we will give you actually yeah. a negative return. Now, well, you know, I mean, think about it. When, when you save money, the idea is you save money. You're disciplined enough to save because you want to have 11 apples in a year instead of 10 apples today. Really? What this says is we'll give you nine apples in a year, and people are, are, are still willing to do that. That's called German negative rates. David Kelly, thank you so much for J.P. Morgan. Uh... Right now on Apple, uh, with Michaud of, uh, uh, of, of Switzerland, Neil Campling joins us right now uh, with, a, with a broader thematic view on Apple. Neil, how do you take Apple over to other tech companies in China? Is that a legitimate exercise or is it just too much guessing? Well, I think, uh, for, for one thing, Apple is the first major um, who have explicitly uh, come out with a warning for the Q1 to say they will be impacted, even though they haven't actually given us the quantifiable of how big the impact is. And we'd expect many others to, to follow. Um, you know, there are the supply chain risks for Apple itself, given that Apple is 12% of global semiconductor demand purchases. There's also the fact that if we look at the S&P 500 in totality, to date, we've had earnings calls from 364 companies of the S&P 500. Of those, only 34 have said that there will be an impact from coronavirus in their guidance or modified guidance in some capacity due to the virus. So the vast majority have not mentioned the virus, either because they just do not know yet 
or in a few instances because there won't be an impact because perhaps they're a utility company. But the majority, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, just don't yet know how big the impact will be. But this is an ongoing dynamic situation, yeah. uh, which is, is still to play out, I think, for many companies. And Neil, I've been surprised that for many companies, we haven't seen the kind of news that was dropped by Apple yesterday. But I guess to your point, they just can't get their hands around this yet. What's been amazing for many of us reading through the Southside research notes, getting our hands around the analyst community and their views, is the T word just keeps coming up again and again and again, transitory, temporary, transitory, temporary. Neil, at what point do you look at things and say, perhaps this won't be as transitory as some people think? I think that's when we have to start thinking that um, if you think that in China specifically, uh, given the size of the economy, there is effectively no, uh, no red envelope season uh, for this year. Um, the, now we're seeing some data, uh, such as the, the German ZEW data this morning, um, such as the B of A uh, fund manager surveys, they're all now being impacted in terms of uh, lower um, confidence. We are seeing uh, issues in terms of hitting uh, European confidence. And the, the risk, I think, is that there won't be this snapback potentially in Q2 because of this kind of hangover effect that affects many industries um, and is not just specific to pure Chinese demand. Um, so you know, the risks of uh, 5G smartphones in the second half of the year could be impacted travel, tourism. Uh, retail is obviously having, having the brunt of uh, some issues as well. If we've, heard from, uh, we've heard from the likes of Under Armour uh, last week and Ralph Lauren as well, trying to give um, some, some uh, uh, sort of qualification around how risky this could be going forward. Neil, so I do think that we haven't impacted that yet, but it will be an issue. Neil, with all your experience at Mirabad Securities, as you look at the broader effects and implications and response to the coronavirus, I'm wondering what you're seeing in some of the emerging Asian economies. A lot of people saying that China's responding with more stimulus, that they'll be able to stave off some of the economic slowdown. Some of these other economies less prepared to do so. What type of demand cannibalization, what kind of loss in demand are we going to see from those nations? It's a great question. I think that we're already um, seeing, uh, for example, you know, revisions down to uh, Singapore GDP, for example. We've had South Korea um, uh, politicians coming out just this morning and talking about a, a risk of an existential crisis if this is not controlled. Um, you know, you're seeing impacts on, uh, on auto vendors in, in South Korea. Uh, you would naturally expect some fallout into other countries such as Vietnam. So right. the supply chain that exists around China is essential for the whole of the, uh, the, the economic region. What is your study, or and I say with respect, your guesstimate of the elasticity of cutting expenses for industrial and tech and TMT? Can they, do, do they have the wiggle room to cut costs fast given revenue prospects that are slower? I think what we generally generally see, if you're if you're um, a, a company that's reliant on industrial or your tech heavy, it's very difficult to reduce that. If you think of uh, if you're a, a capacity utilization focused semiconductor fab, you might not need the people that you would need at uh, Honhai's iPhone City, but you have to keep those fabs at 90% plus capacity utilization rates. Otherwise, your margins get negatively impacted very quickly, and it's also very slow to, um, to, to increase capacity again once it's been cut. So it's often not something you can just dial down for two weeks and not have an impact thereafter. Neil, I'd like to turn to something else just to wrap things up, and that's the Trump administration, according to several reports, considering new restrictions on exports to cutting-edge technology 
into China. This is something that over the last month or so has been increasingly overlooked because of what has been happening with the coronavirus. How closely are you looking at those kind of moves potentially coming up this year, Neil? I think it's, uh, it's something uh, which we described as a, a, an ongoing IP war um, between China and the U.S., which is very concerning for supply chains. For one thing, I think that we've had, obviously, uh, the blacklisting of Huawei last year. But actually, what, what ended up do- happening was that Huawei just supply- got component supplies from other countries outside of the U.S. and displacing the U.S. component companies. So the U.S. is now looking at other tactics if you basically banned equipment being shipped out to China and not giving those licenses, it has ramifications for, for many companies around the world. And I think basically what is happening here is we have a, a superpower battle to which, which superpower nation becomes the leader for 5G technologies because many reports suggest there's $14 trillion of economic gains potential between now and 2035 from 5G. And that, I think, is at the heart of what's going on in, in this battle. A huge, huge issue right now between the United States and China and Europe, Tom. <clears throat> Europe finding it somewhere well, yeah, south, pri- stuck know, somewhere in between. And Prime Minister Johnson may be more in between than the others in between. You know, I mean, his trip is cancelled or somebody's trip is cancelled. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think we saw that over the, uh, the weekend. He's not getting along with the president of the United States. Uh Right now, we're going to touch on a politics story for a moment. It's, of course, reigned supreme this morning. We had two polls, a Marist poll, more of a national uh, poll into Nevada and South Carolina, and then a Monmouth University poll, which was very specifically on Virginia as well. Elaine Kamerick has been very uh, good to join us from Brookings. She's a senior fellow uh, there with some important books on presidents. Elaine, I believe we have a debate, and our Kevin Cirilli would suggest the debate will be contentious, raucous, particularly if Mr. Bloomberg uh, uh, shows up and is part of that debate as well. How does a grizzled pro like you look at one of these debates? What do you look for that we miss? Well, I think what you look for is who is going to have the greatest effect on the upcoming contest. So it's not necessarily who, quote, wins the evening, but what the momentum is coming out of the debate into the contest, because we are now in the real thing. So, for instance, yeah. in the New Hampshire debate a couple of weeks ago, we saw a, a stellar performance by Senator Amy Globuchar, and that translated immediately into support from uncommitted, right. previously uncommitted voters in New Hampshire. In your study of these elections, are there too many candidates for the debate tomorrow? Like, like should somebody fall on the sword here before the debate to clear <laughs> it up for the either the liberals or the moderates? Well, actually, the field is cut down considerably yeah, for this debate. Fair. It's a much smaller field than we have had. And it's a very interesting field because we have two strong left-of-center candidates, especially Senator Sanders. And, of course, the introduction of Michael Bloomberg into this mix is going to really shake things up. And we will see if he has actual voter appeal when he's on his own as opposed to in a packaged 
um, you know, setting like a, a TV commercial. So, Elaine, you mentioned Mike, so let's talk about him, the founder majority owner yeah. of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. As we've seen in the previous debates, if you make a search in the polls, you'll become the focus of attention. Happened to Mayor Pete Buttigieg just a couple of weeks back, and most people assume it yeah. will happen to Mr. Bloomberg this coming Wednesday. Elaine, how willing will they be to make that pivot? To sharpen that, sharpen their swords, so to speak, and aim at Mr. Bloomberg himself. Well, that's going to be very interesting because I think that the, we have a little bit of precedent that in that in Tom Steyer, um, people are reluctant to be too mean to these front-running billionaires because, in fact, Steyer and Bloomberg have been very generous with their money all the way across the board to the Democrats. So a Democratic uh, candidate up there, on the one hand, would like to take down Michael Bloomberg a couple notches. On the other hand, doesn't want to make him too mad because we, the we and the Democrats, everybody needs his money going into the fall. There's also a question about how much people are going to be looking for some sort of message which is being given by the populists versus the electability argument that the candidate could actually beat President Trump in an election. How much do you think, where, where do you think the Democratic Party is tipping at this point in terms of the importance of both of those things, a sort of driving message versus just beating Trump? Well, I think it's still mostly on the beating Trump page. However, Bernie Sanders has a very, very coherent message. It's been a constant message, and he has a very devoted core in the Democratic Party. What we're going to see probably not um, in Nevada or South Carolina, but right. we'll see for the first time on Super Tuesday, is whether or not he can expand his base. Some people say it is both a ceiling um, and a floor. Well, where are you on that? I mean, that was my question. You just answered my question. But but where are you on that? Is there any evidence that the senator from Vermont can, quote unquote, expand his base? Um, there's a little bit of evidence. Absolutely. Um, um, but not much. In New Hampshire, he um, seems to have done not yeah. really as well as he did four years ago. On the other hand, um, he is moving slightly among African-American voters, which is something he hasn't done in the past. So there's a little bit of evidence that he's getting some traction beyond his traditional base. Elaine, thank you so much. Elaine Kmark with Brookings this morning in Harvard, uh, joining us here, and particularly with her important books on presidential uh, history as well. Yeah, I'm let Paul Sweeney slide into our esteemed guest, Michael Holland. Uh, has been so entrenched in our equity cadence, our equity discourse for decades, that we forget his accomplishments, not only with Oppenheimer Company years ago in a small shop called Blackstone, uh, but his work for his Harvard uh, College and also the Winston Churchill Foundation of the United States. This so, is not Michael Holland's first rodeo, is it, Tom? No, it's, no. Not, it's okay. not his first great bull market <laughs> okay. Michael Holland, uh, chairman of Holland & Company, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Michael. So, you know, as we step back here and look at the market, the performance we had in 2019, the, uh, you know, pretty solid start here to 2020, you know, to the extent that there are some concerns out there, one of them is the concentration of their performance and, you know, roughly a handful of names some some tech names that we all know, the Amazons or the Microsofts or the Apples of the world. How concerned are you about that aspect of the market's overall performance? 
Well, concern, Paul, is 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 a word. I I would uh, just uh, move back from that and say, mindful that when these things get crazed, and I was born into the business. Tom knows. Uh, in something called the Nifty 50, where a handful of stocks back in the 70s was uh, doing what we're seeing today. But it's it's different in that the valuations of the big names, the Microsofts and the Apples, uh, the valuations are not as egregious as they were back then. Some friends have recently asked me, as they want to do, uh, when would you sell all of your stocks, which is a variation on some of the things Tom Keene has asked me over the years. And I would sell all my stocks if they became egregiously priced, as I uh, observed painfully in the 1970s when I broke into the business, because the crash of those nifty 50 stocks was was breathtaking and how much capital was was uh, was destroyed. And so I think at, at this point, it's, it's something to be mindful of. I would actually oh. say, you, you've actually, actually asked a great question, because the coronavirus may actually cause, it's, it has the possibility of causing something like that to happen again if the world uh, liquidity spigots go wide open sometime in the next 6 to 12 months. But, but what's so interesting, Michael, is the backdrop are stunningly negative real yields, and in some places in the world, true nominal yields negative. The 30-year bond with a 198 handle, three cups of coffee ago, is almost a negative yield that we saw in 08, 09. What does that signal to you to see bond prices bid up and yields ever lower? Uh, it's it's uh, something that, uh, that we've never seen in our lifetimes in the business. It, it makes all the ec- economics uh, 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 minds go go crazy when they talk about how do you how do you uh, get uh, real pricing in in all of the world's markets when you have negative yields. There's a there's just a, a an inherent contradiction in, in in all of this. So the risk-free rates of return no longer have any meaning. So, uh, but it, Tom, it, it's actually interesting because you and I, I hope, are not talking about this a year from now. But uh, it's possible that because of what you just described, as well as uh, the possibility that we have a, a spigot opening in terms of even further liquidity around the world that we could get to crazy valuations yeah. once again which causes then we know what the other side of that is but in the meantime so the risk is in both directions i think always but i think right. now we have a little more risk in the other direction which would be upward rather than yeah. downward paul sweeney it's not, it's not a good sign yeah. euro breaking down 107.90 now with dxy stronger dxy out to yep. new highs dollar strength yeah michael you know it's interesting we were just following up on tom's uh, you know question about you know the the, the bond market you know just looking at our commodity screen here on the Bloomberg terminal you look at the energy down double digit metals down mid single digits ags down you know red on the screen so the commodity market is clearly saying hey maybe there's some slowing global growth maybe the coronavirus here is is a big issue for global growth the equity markets not so much and again is that just kind of go back to that argument of the Fed and central banks around the world keeping liquidity in the marketplace Yes and yes, and 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 Paul, to your to your point, uh, the the inflation that inflation has been a word that has been around Bloomberg uh, a lot recently in in the different formats and media, but uh, and and the inflation uh, today is what Tom just talked about with the bond markets. The prices there are stratospheric, 
so nosebleed time in terms of prices and, and as he says, negative yield. So those financial assets, and then you have the stock market, you have the the, uh, the, the Facebooks and the Teslas and so on. So you have you have all of these things going on simultaneously with with the right. commodities market saying there's no <clears throat> there's no inflation of that kind yeah. of thing to be worried about with gold, etc. On the other hand, you have inflation in the asset prices of financial assets. Right. So, and, and right now, I don't think it's as, as worrisome as your original question uh, posited. But uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, that's what I'm watching right now. Well, we run out of time. Michael Holland, thank you so much. i got about 10 more questions, and we'll continue that with him another time. Mr. Holland with Holland & Company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.